Welcome back to the show. Today we're going to be talking with AM14 volunteers. We're going to be talking with Laura Hackney, the CEO of Annie Cannons. You'll learn more about what Annie Cannons is, but basically it's a company that works to provide support to human trafficking victims. Let's hop right in. Hey guys, welcome back to episode three of Am for Teens podcast series on human trafficking in collaboration with Love 146. Am 14's mission is to connect young people around the world with opportunities and established international organizations to contribute to the fight against the global issues that they're passionate about. Um, all right. Uh, hi, um, I'm Zach. Uh, Zachary or Zach both work. Um, I'm a grade 11 student, and I think this is a really cool chance for being on a podcast and getting to talk about these issues. Awesome. All right, uh, Vani, go ahead. Hi, I'm Vani. I'm in grade 10, and I also think that this is a very important sort of topic that we need to talk about. So I'm very happy to be here. And then I'm Ben. Uh, I'm also super excited. Again, I think this is really important. I don't think awareness is talked about as much. I'm a grade 11 student, and I can't wait to hear about you and about your organization. So let's get started with our questions. All right. Um, oh, sorry. Hi, Laura. Uh, welcome to our podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, we're just going to start with a few questions right now. Is that okay? That sounds great. It's great to be here. All right. Um, so what's the story behind Annie Cannons? I, I, how did you start your organization? What's the meaning behind the name? Because Annie Cannons is actually a really unique name. I don't think I can find any meaning behind that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and thank you so much for asking. Annie Cannons, um, we are a 501c3 nonprofit based in Oakland, California. Um, we were founded about six years ago, um, and our mission is to transform survivors of human trafficking and gender-based violence into software engineers. And the reason that we came about um, is because um, what we were seeing in the anti-trafficking and anti-gender-based movements was that there was a lot of focus on, on things like rescue or intervention, um, how to get someone out of a situation of exploitation, how to provide um, sort of crisis support services, as well as how to raise, you know, general public awareness to the fact that these types of things are happening um, in our communities. But what was missing was long-term support for survivors, ways for individuals to, you know, build careers and build meaningful pathways to economic independence. Um, and so what we started doing was we started looking at how could we help create a training program as well as a way for people to start um, really getting on the job experience, building software um, so that they could essentially break out of those cycles of exploitation. And, and coding was a really great fit because people were, you know, you can, you can learn coding. You don't need to have a certain, you know, certain levels of education. It's something that, um, you know, we can make really accessible. Um, and also we found that a lot of the people that were interested in our program and what we were hearing from a lot of survivor leaders was having this sort of flexibility in terms of how to shape one's own career. And also the fact that, you know, people were really good at problem solving and really good at, at solving these 
these come, you know, navigating these really complex situations and that software engineering was actually a really great fit. Um, so we started putting together our organization and, and launching in 2015. Um, and to answer your other question about our name, we, we get that question a lot, which is great. And I often get, and I know other coworkers get called Annie sometimes. <laughs> um, but Annie Jump Cannon, um, she's a real person who in the early 20th century was hired with a group um, of other individuals by a professor at, at Harvard, an astrophysics professor. Um, and he hired a group of women and um, they were doing, you know, what he thought was going to be sort of basic data entry uh, work. And they ended up discovering the life cycle and composition of stars. And they ended up creating a stellar classification system um, for stars. And they made all of these advancements in, in technology and sciences in that particular field. Um, and many of them were told, you know, that they had no place in, in the field, um, a lot of experience discrimination. Um, but what we loved about the story was that Annie really tried to keep people engaged and bring more people in and that oftentimes people in our society that are undervalued often have the most to give and the most potential to make advances in some of these STEM fields. Um, so yeah, that's where the name comes from. Wow, thank you. That's, that was really detailed. <laughs> that, was, that was awesome. Thank you, Laura. So I think you're kind of answered our second question a little bit, which is about how, uh, what's your approach to combating human trafficking, really offering long-term support, which I think is really interesting because you're you totally, we were right about how that's not really around right now. Definitely. So let's get to our third question. Uh, how does human trafficking manifest itself in developed nations like the United States? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, the International Labor Organization estimates there are around 40.3 million um, people who are being trafficked around the world. Um, and those numbers are really hard to, it's, it's really hard to, um, to estimate prevalence when it comes to um, how many people are experiencing exploitation. Um, but we are talking about a large number of individuals as well as a large number of individuals in the United States. Um, one of the first questions I often get asked is, you know, you know, what other countries are people coming from? And I often have to tell people, you know, while that does exist, while people are trafficked from outside the United States into the U.S., a lot of the a lot of the survivors um, that we work with are actually people who were born in the United States and experienced trafficking here domestically. Um, so it's definitely a problem that affects multiple different industries. Um, there's sex trafficking and labor trafficking. In labor trafficking, um, you know, across the country, there have been reported cases in agriculture and hospitality, construction, um, all sorts of things. So it's it's really it's really about individuals um, being exploited for for their work, for um, you know their their economic gain, um, and so that really can manifest in so many different ways. And so many um, survivors have different stories. Of what happened to them and in our organization we not only work with survivors of trafficking but because there is often this huge overlap with issues around um, domestic violence and gender-based violence um, we found that oftentimes disaggregating the two doesn't doesn't often make sense for certain people's lived experiences um, so so it takes it, it takes many different forms um, but at the end of the day i think the way that the response has changed. It's really gone from one of, like I was mentioning earlier, around rescuing people to really identifying what some of the push and pull factors are, what what 
are the policies or different structures in our societies like discrimination actually make people vulnerable to exploitation? Um, and how can we actually address those? And how can we provide pathways out of those situations for as many people as possible? Thank you so much for that detailed answer. We often don't get the perspective from developed nations because a lot of people they focus on third world countries, thinking that trafficking only manifests there. So thank you so much for that insight. And that leads us to our next question, which is how can we recognize the red flags in our own backyard? And what can we do about them exactly? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. I think, um, you know, there, there are different red flags depending on what type, what types of trafficking you're, you're thinking about. Um, but I think one of the things that I, I like to mention is that there are often those, um, those compounding vulnerabilities that I was mentioning. And so if we have um, an underfunded foster care system or if we have um, systems where group homes aren't being properly regulated, um, there are all sorts of, of red flags that I think exist in so many of our communities um, because a number of policies that are in place or, or funding strategies aren't actually going to, to supporting people before they get trafficked in the first place or before they're exploited in the first place. Um, and so I think looking at some of these areas um, where we can invest in prevention um, is actually really, really important as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was really interesting because I think a lot of us are focusing on like how to help after and I think a lot of us forget the fact that we can do some things to prevent it in the first place. I think that's really cool. Yeah, one of the, um, just to share a quick story, one of our um, one of our trainees in one of our cohorts, we have, as part of our training program, people come up with their own um, ideas for a software product that could solve a problem that they experienced in their own lives or saw in their own communities. Um, and it's a wonderful way to teach people about how technology companies actually go about building software, the full process of, you know, once you've identified the problem and the solution you want to build, what are all the steps that you need to take in order to get that to actually being, you know, an app or, or a website or something like that. And one of our students came up with this idea based on her experience, which was um, when she was when she was younger and in high school, she didn't have uh, the money that was needed to actually pay for after-school activities like uniform fees or different fees associated with joining clubs and things like that after school. Um, and that was, a, and, and she didn't have anyone to pick her up either. Um, so when she was outside of school waiting to be picked up, that was when she, um, you know, first met the person who ended up being her exploiter. Um, and she said, you know, if I was, if I had been able to get the funding to go into some of those programs, um, I wouldn't have had that experience. I wouldn't have been vulnerable because I wouldn't have been sort of waiting, um, you know, after school for such a long period of time. Um, and so she had this idea to connect individuals and families with, with companies that might want to sponsor those fees um, on, you know, using technology. And I, I love the idea because if you were just presenting the technology itself, it wouldn't necessarily seem like it was something that was fighting trafficking. Um, but from her lived experience, that would have been something that she identified as a solution. Um, so things like that are just are, I think, really exciting about how we can use technology to address some of these issues that are um, unfortunately quite commonplace in some of our communities. Yeah, that's so interesting to see so many multiple perspectives and how they can 
be used to come up with unique solutions that you, know, you or me might not have thought of. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And uh, thank you for that. Um, for our next question, uh, we were wondering, because the media often sensationalizes human trafficking. They like to paint very cliche narratives of it. What are some things that we should avoid doing when discussing trafficking? For example, like in previous episodes, we've discussed uses of the terms survivor as opposed to victim. Mm. Um, what would be what would be some things that we should avoid when we're trying to discuss about these topics? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm so glad you asked that question, and I and I think it's such um, it's it's still unfortunately quite a quite a problem today that sort of over sen um, sensationalism uh, around the issue of human trafficking, and so I think you know again being um, being really curious about where people are getting numbers from and statistics from and sort of questioning um, what the sort of untold stories are there. I think a lot of times when it comes to visuals or, or images of trafficking, um, they can often come from, from certain lenses that I think are trying to, to portray different things. And so just really questioning what images you're seeing um, and, and sort of what the, the legacies are of a lot of those images, I think, a lot of times when I see images of, of trafficking, it's often someone, you know, with, um, I see, you know, like a white woman um, who's, you know, sort of has a damsel in distress, um, you know, type, type theme to the image, um, or there's oftentimes people with their hands bound and things like that. And I think moving away from a lot of those narratives and understanding the complexity of the fact of you know, how this affects different communities, how it affects communities of color, how certain policies and legislation can exacerbate trafficking and trafficking in, in different parts of the country. Um, so I think just really questioning things. And, and when you're talking about trafficking, I think keeping in mind the, the language that a lot of survivor leaders are using and, and being mindful of, of not trying to create a, a, as much of an us versus them type mentality, but really trying to to give as much space as possible and as, as many opportunities to give voice um, or, or I guess give space for survivors to, to be the ones, um, you know, sharing their voices, not just their stories, but their expertise. Um, and so I think just kind of using some of those frameworks um, is really going to be how the whole movement moves forward. And, and like you said, um, starting to use terms um, that are more about the whole individual and the potential of the individual um, is really important instead of just using terms like victim. Awesome. That makes lots of sense. So I think for our last question, it's going to be a little bit of a part, uh, a two-parter. So first off, what kind of, what was your inspiration? Right? Like what, uh, do you, was there a specific moment? How young were you? When did you really start to realize this is what you wanted to do? Uh, and then also, over this journey, what have you learned from creating this organization, leading it, seeing all these people? Oh, yeah. Um, I think for me, the um, my background, so I was doing um, research work and and working at the, the human rights program um, at Stanford University before starting Annie Cannons. And a lot of our work um, was both based in the the San Francisco Bay Area, um, as well as in different parts of the world, like East and Southeast Asia. Um, and really, I, my sort of, um, 
my sort of moment, it was sort of a, a building of frustration, <laughs> I'll call it, because um, I just kept getting more and more frustrated at the fact that um, there were people were just caught in these cycles. People who, who, if they had access to opportunities, could be such incredible, um, not only programmers, but, but leaders in, in this space and in, in other spaces and in other industries. And um, just seeing how, how, as a society, we just weren't paying attention to those individuals and weren't providing enough of those support services. Um, so I think the, the inspiration kind of came out of frustration and saying, you know, we, we want to be able to partner with organizations that are providing some of those really important support services in the aftercare space, um, but also sort of fill that gap that we were seeing in, in that long-term, you know, career pathway. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a lot of, a lot of venting <laughs> and a lot of frustration um, to a lot of people. And um and yeah, and also around that time, this was about you know six years ago, there were a lot of coding boot camps that were popping up all over the Bay Area. Um, so if you had um, you know thousands of dollars and and several weeks to be able to to join one of these programs, you could pivot your career completely um, into technology. And so we thought we can work with these some of these companies and some of these other organizations who are trying to promote diversity in in the tech fields. And create something where um, you know we're not we're not necessarily recreating the wheel, but we're just taking a lot of this curriculum and a lot of this training, these training materials, and, and making them more accessible and creating an environment that is more trauma respons responsive as it as it should be for for who we want to work with. Um, so that was sort of the the foundation of of why it started. And then in terms of um, the important lessons or takeaways, there are so many. <laughs> um, and I think, um, you know, I, I think for me personally, it's, it's really, you know, continuing to find just incredible networks of people to work with um, and, and being able to recognize that, you know, when some people, when you first meet someone or, you know, when someone first comes into our classroom, um, oftentimes there can be um, sort of layers on the outside, um, sort of fronts that people have. Um, and if you give people time and space to, um, and, and that sort of support to really, um, one of, one of my coworkers calls it flex their genius muscles. <laughs> um, but people just have tremendous potential and, and tremendous, um, I think not only potential and, and ability to move their own lives forward, um, but almost everyone who's gone through our program has wanted to then also help other people go through our program. And I think that that's been that sort of community aspect of, of what's grown out of Annie Cannons has been one of the most, for me, treasured parts of the whole experience is seeing how other people want to build other people up. Um, and just being a part of that community has been really lovely. That's awesome. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much, Laura. That's all of our questions. Uh, we will, of course, send you this so you can hear it. And just thank you so much for joining us. This is awesome. Thank you. Of course. Yeah, this was lovely. Thank you so much for asking great questions and, um, and reaching out to, to highlight this topic.
Thanks for listening, everybody. That was Laura Hackney, the CEO of Annie Cannons, a company that works to support human trafficking victims by giving them opportunities to work with software and learn to code. Thanks again for listening. If you want to be a part of awesome opportunities like this and more, please check out AM14s. And if you want to learn more about human trafficking, please check out Laura Hackney's website, Annie Cannons, and her corporation, as well as other sites and our previous episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.